1 Corinthians chapter 6. We begin in verse 9. This is the word of God. Let us hear it. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Meats for the belly and the belly for meats, but God shall destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God hath both both raised up the Lord and will also raise up us by his own power. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of an harlot? God forbid. What? Know ye not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Amen. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. I want to call your attention, well, actually to the end of verse 19 and to the beginning of verse 20, where Paul asks the rhetorical question and thus, in essence, makes a statement when he says, Ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price. Ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price. Now, usually when a person thinks of the church at Corinth, the first thing that comes to mind is the problem church. This is the problem church. Indeed, of all Paul's epistles, can you think of any that come close to having as many problems as the church at Corinth? There was the problem of divisions in the church. It seems that the church divided over favorite personalities. I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Paul, I'm of Christ. And there was the problem of Christians taking other Christians to court instead of settling matters among themselves. And then there was a serious problem of sexual immorality 
that had become bad even by pagan Gentile standards. And there was the problem of abusing spiritual gifts. Well, I suppose one might wonder if gospel power had been manifested at all among those that made up the church at Corinth. Sounds like it would be an easy church just to flee from. And yet for all the problems that were taking place in the church, Paul leaves no doubt as to how he regarded them. And I find this to be very telling and instructive, especially among Christians that may have a tendency to be judgmental. Listen to how Paul begins this epistle to these problematic Christians in chapter 1. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ, that in everything ye are enriched by him, in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that ye come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you unto the end, that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. It seems, doesn't it, that Paul was confident that they were Christians, and that the grace of God had indeed been manifested in their lives, problems notwithstanding. And if this epistle to the Corinthians teaches us anything, it certainly teaches us that we begin as babes, and that spiritual growth can be a slow and difficult process and challenge. That's not to say that it's slow and challenging for each and every Christian but it is to say that the rate of spiritual growth varies greatly among Christians. Some grow faster than others. Some make quick and rapid progress, while others may grow much slower. It seems that where the church at Corinth was concerned, Paul was very concerned that the church as a whole seemed stuck at a level of childlike immaturity and that they needed to grow up, as it were. Listen to how he addresses them beginning in chapter 3 and verse 1. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto ye were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able. For ye are yet carnal, for where is there is among you envying and strife and divisions. Are ye not carnal and walk as men? Fortunately, Paul knew the solution to immaturity, as well as the means for spiritual growth. And the solution is the same for Christians at every level of maturity and growth. It's the main contributing factor for our spiritual growth here this morning. And it's found in the words of our text at the end of verse 19, carried into verse 20. It begins with the words, Ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price, Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. 
So in preparation for our time around the Lord's table this morning, I want you to think with me on the price paid for our redemption. Remembering the price. That's my theme. And let's think first of all on the price itself. Okay, the price itself. For ye are bought with a price. What price? What price was paid for your redemption? And the price paid for your redemption or your salvation was nothing less than the blood of Christ. That price draws its value from the person of Christ. Peter compares that price with the things of this world that are held to be most valuable. He compares the price to silver and gold. Silver and gold are sometimes referred to as precious metals. I've always been kind of fascinated by the discussions and debates in the realm of economics that pertain to the kind of currency we use. There are those that believe very strongly that our currency ought to be based on a gold standard or a silver standard. You go back in history far enough and it was based on precious metals. Today there is no gold or silver behind our paper currency and some would argue that there should be. Not my purpose to enter into that debate this morning. The only thing I would point out is that as valuable as gold and silver may be, they are wholly insufficient when it comes to our salvation. Peter refers to them as corruptible things. When he writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Now we know concerning Christ that he is one person with two natures. Our shorter catechism puts it this way in answer to question number eight. Who is the redeemer of God's elect? The answer, the only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal son of God became man and so was and continueth to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. Oh, that is a statement that was forged out through many years of history and examining the scriptures and discussions and debates. That's not something that the Westminster divines simply sat down and discussed over Starbucks you know, and then came to that conclusion. Uh, no, that was a statement that was forged uh, through much challenge and difficulty. And admittedly, it defies comprehension. One person and two natures, and those natures are very distinct. They are not mixed at all. And yet the person is a singular person. And so when we contemplate the blood of Christ then, we acknowledge it to be a part of his humanity. 
He must be a man in order to have blood. God in his divine nature is a spirit, and a spirit has no need of blood. But because Christ is one person with two distinct natures, his value is derived from that divine nature, and such is the way that his two natures come together into one person that there are instances when aspects of his humanity may be referred to from the perspective of his deity. We have an example of this in Acts 20 and verse 28, where Paul admonishes the elders at Ephesus, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God, which he had purchased with his own blood. Underscore that phrase. The church of God, which he had purchased with his own blood. You could say the church of God purchased by the blood of God, if you will. The notes to the Reformation Study Bible say this about that verse in Acts. The phrasing is remarkable in the way it acknowledges that the blood of Christ is the blood of God. This points to the hypostatic union, the union of a complete human nature and the complete divine nature in the one person of Christ. Because of this union, the attributes of one nature, in this case blood, an attribute of his human nature, can be attributed to the one person of Christ, who as the second person of the Trinity is very God of very God. He draws his value from the nature of the person. We know, of course, from Leviticus chapter 17 and verse 11, it's a verse that uh, quite often is quoted around the communion table. That's the verse that tells us that the life of the flesh is in the blood so when we read of the shedding of Christ's blood, we are reading of the very life of Christ being poured out before God. This is why we're called on around this table to remember the blood of Christ. There is nothing in this world that comes close to matching the value and the virtue of the blood of Christ. And because the life is in the blood, there is a pouring out of Christ's life when his blood is shed. How that should move us to reverential awe to consider that God was willing to pay such a price in order to redeem us from an estate of sin and misery <coughs> and bring us into an estate of salvation. The hymn writer writes, I hear the words of love, I gaze upon the blood, I see the mighty sacrifice, and I have peace with God. Nothing less than blood with such value could, could suffice to satisfy the claims of divine justice. Remember the price, therefore, Paul would have the saints at Corinth remember the price, for in so doing, they would overcome strife and division and abuse and spiritual immaturity and gross immorality. Remember the price, Paul says. 
rather interesting. This would make for a good study sometime. I've suggested it to you. The next time you read through 1 Corinthians, watch at how Paul applies the gospel to every one of these problems that I mentioned earlier. The gospel is the solution. Remembering the price paid is the solution, is the means for our spiritual growth and for attaining humility and humble praise before our God. And as you remember the blood, your lives will be marked as you become impressed with the price paid for your redemption. If you truly believe in Christ, then you will know that you all you owe him all that you are and all that you have on account of his willingness to pay that kind of price for your redemption. So we think on the price itself when we remember the blood of Christ. But let's consider next the ramification of that price. One very strong ramification, which in a sense amounts to the essence of salvation, is given to us at the end of verse 19. Listen to that verse. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? Underscore the last part of the verse, which asks the rhetorical question, and thus states, ye are not your own. Boy, does that ever smack hard against the world's thinking. Why are you not your own? Well, verse 20 tells you, for ye are bought with a price. One well-known Christian author and preacher based on this statement in verse 19 says this, the ultimate question is not who you are, but whose you are. Many people today, including, unfortunately, many Christians, are under the wrong impression that they don't belong to anyone outside of themselves. I am my own man. I am my own master. And we are taught to believe that. That's the world's philosophy. The Jews in Christ's day, even during the time when they were in subjection to the Roman Empire, they said to Jesus, we be Abraham's seed and we're never in bondage to any man. John eight thirty three. I look at a statement like that and I say to myself, could anybody be more deluded than those Jews in Christ's day? Had they forgotten their own history and how the northern kingdom and then the southern kingdom of Judah had both been taken into captivity by the Assyrians and then by the Babylonians? Had they forgotten those 70 years in captivity? Had they forgotten that ever since that time they had never been an independent nation, even right up to that very hour? Before that heated debate was over, Christ would say to them, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. John eight forty four. 
The whole issue of who we belong to was raised by the devil himself in the Garden of Eden. And by partaking of the forbidden fruit, Adam and Eve basically said the same thing. The citizens from the parable of the noblemen say in Luke chapter 19 and verse 14, we will not have this man to reign over us. It's basically what Adam and Eve were saying by their actions, if not their words. That was their declaration. And it's been the declaration of fallen man ever since that time. I won't have Christ to rule over me. I won't have anyone rule over me. I'm my own man. I rule over myself. That isn't very hard to tell, is it, how our culture promotes that kind of philosophy. And it's reached such an extreme in our day that sinful man says he won't have anyone define marriage for him. He won't even have anyone tell him what gender he is. I have in my digital library a book with an interesting title. It's a a question of the title of this book. It asks this question, Is God a moral monster? In this book, the author seeks to deal with the various aspects of the Bible that suggest, especially to a critical and unbelieving world, that God is cruel, very cruel. Why would God send a flood over the whole earth? Why did God command Joshua to exterminate the Canaanites and then give the promised land to Israel. And among the issues dealt with in this book is the issue of slavery. Why does the Apostle Paul condone slavery and command slaves to be obedient to their masters? Is God a moral monster? The thought that struck me, especially in the section that deals with slavery is that however you may argue for or against slavery, the thing that must always be kept in mind is that your beginning point has to be that every child of Adam is a slave. That's our beginning point for any discussion on slavery. You are a slave. I am a slave. Maybe not a slave to other men, as history records for us, but a slave nevertheless It's not an ultimate matter of slavery versus freedom. It's a matter of who, ultimately, you belong to. You're a servant of Christ, or you're a slave of the devil. Or as Paul states it in Romans 6, you're a servant of sin unto death, or a servant of obedience unto righteousness. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans 6, in verse 17. But God be thanked, that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you, being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. Do you see how true freedom is found in being a slave to Jesus Christ? Paul himself gloried in being a bond slave of Christ. Romans 1 and verse 1, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated under the gospel of God. 
Paul, a servant, literally Paul, a bond servant, or Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. Salvation, you see, is from many things. When you gained a saving interest in Christ, you were saved from hell, and you were saved from sin's dominion, and you were saved from the devil, and you were saved from this present evil world, and, most significantly, we can add to the list, you were saved from self. Saved from yourself. You were saved from the self-deception that would lie to you by telling you that you're your own man or woman. You were not your own. And what's more, you never were your own, contrary to everything that the world throws at you. As a Christian, you belong to Jesus Christ. He paid a very high price for you, the price of his blood, as we considered a moment ago. J.C. Ryle remarked, The world's idea of greatness is to rule. But Christian greatness consists in serving. And the Puritan Richard Sibbs said, To serve God is to reign. Man was created, we know, don't we, to have dominion over the world, but under God. And man is redeemed to spread Christ's kingdom throughout the earth. Our freedom, therefore, comes through knowing the purpose for which we we were created and the purpose for which we were purchased by the blood of Christ. As we partake of these elements this morning, therefore, let's remember whose we are. Let's remember who we belong to. And let's remember the high price that he paid to make us his. Ye are not your own. Thank God you are not your own. For ye are bought with a price. So we focused on the price that was paid for us. We've considered the ramification of that high price being paid. Let's think finally, thirdly, on what we could call the conclusion, then, of the whole matter. Ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price, therefore. Underscore that word, therefore. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Because you belong to him, Because he redeemed you to himself, therefore you are to glorify him. We have here, don't we, what could be considered a proof text to the very first question in our shorter catechism. There's one I love to stress, especially to young people. What is the chief end of man? Another way to put it, I suppose, would be, why do you exist? You know how many people there are in this world that are advanced in years and have no clue what the answer to that question is? They don't know how they got here. They don't know what they're doing here. They don't know where they're going from here. 
They don't know the purpose for their existence. What is the chief end of man? You know the answer, I trust. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And we don't have to take that question and answer on its own authority. We have now in our text this morning, what I just said is a very good proof text, and that's where we draw our authority from, the Bible, a good proof text for that question and answer in our shorter catechism. Now I know that we have considered on numerous occasions that there is a sense in which we cannot glorify God. How can we add to someone who is already altogether glorious? And the answer, of course, is that we glorify him in a declarative sense. We declare his glory. In his book, The Body of Divinity, I recommend that book. You love to read theology. The Body of Divinity, Thomas Watson. It was a textbook that Charles Spurgeon used for his students that he trained for the ministry. Body of Divinity. Basically, it's a commentary on the Shorter Catechism. And the Puritan Thomas Watson, he lists 17 ways in which we can glorify God. We've actually covered those. I don't know if you would remember it or not. This goes back a ways to a time when we went through the Shorter Catechism in our Sunday school class. And when I had occasion to teach that class, I found Thomas Watson very helpful. 17 ways in which we can glorify God. I won't list all 17 of them now, but I will give you a little bit of a sampling. Thomas Watson notes, we glorify God when we aim for his glory. And what this amounts to is doing our best in whatever, is, whatever it is that we're doing because we're doing it for him. This covers every realm that you can think of, uh, especially in the workplace. Your workplace is your mission field. Your labor is to be done as unto God. And you glorify him when you do your best, because it is your desire to glorify him with your best. And whatsoever ye do, Paul writes in Colossians 3, do it heartily as to the Lord, and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. I know I've shared with you that when I worked in printing, I printed out that verse in as large a letters as I could fit on an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper, and I mounted it to the wall in front of me so that I would keep ever before my eyes my motivation for working hard. I do it as unto the Lord. Thomas Watson also notes, we glorify God by confessing our sins. We glorify God by believing in him, believing in his word, believing in his son, believing in his promises, etc. We glorify God by being sensitive to or jealous for his glory. I hope this is the case with you. I know it is with me, and it was with me when I was in the working world. I can't stand it. 
when I hear his name profaned and blasphemed, which is just about all the time. Don't let yourself become so desensitized to his glory that you become indifferent to the way he's spoken of by rebellious sinners. And I'm not now suggesting that whenever you hear his name profaned that you mount the soapbox, so to speak, and beckon out the commandment, though, mind you, you would not risk coming under discipline from this church for doing so. But all I'm suggesting to you now is that it ought to at least bother you. You ought to be sensitive enough, jealous enough for the glory of his name that you can't stand it when you hear his name used that way. We glorify God by being fruitful for him. Herein is my Father glorified, Christ said in John 15, 8, that ye bear much fruit. We glorify God by being content with his providence and where his providence has placed us and what he in his providence has given us. And we certainly stand in stark contrast to the world in that respect. Oh, if you can manifest a testimony in the workplace that you are content in Christ, uh, you're going to stand out from most of the others. Uh, The default mode is, I'm not satisfied. I don't get paid enough. I'm overworked. So-and-so earns more money than me, and they shouldn't. So-and-so is my boss, and I ought to be his boss, etc., etc. A content person doesn't have to be pulled down into that morass. You recognize, I am where God has me, and I'm content to be there. And I mean to tell you, if you demonstrate that by your demeanor, you will stand out as being different. So we glorify God with contentment. We glorify God, and this is very broad in general, by living to God. 2 Corinthians 5.15 And that he died for all that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Or in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 31, Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Well, there are really a lot of contributing factors, aren't there, when it comes to our glorifying God? And would you note from our text how Paul describes the, fe- the spheres in which we're to glorify God. We're to glorify him in our bodies and in our spirits, which are his. I don't know if you caught it or not when we read the section from this chapter that we read from the beginning of our study. What an emphasis Paul places on the body of the Christian. Now, the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Verse 13. Verse 18, flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. And verses 19 and 20, the words of our text, 
What know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now it may be that because of a prevailing notion in ancient Greek philosophy that anything material in the world was intrinsically evil, including the body, that Paul places such a strong emphasis on the body. Uh, We don't go along with that Greek notion. You're to glorify God with your body. And I'm aware this morning that in many of the modern English translations, the phrase, and in your spirit, which are God's, is very conspicuous by its absence from those modern translations. The omission is unfortunate and is based on the fact that in a few overly favored ancient manuscripts, the phrase is missing in Greek, even though it's found in the overwhelming majority of all manuscripts. Now, the reason that we love to use the King James Version in our public worship services, it follows the majority text and not the the, uh, speculative, uh, eclectic text, it's sometimes called. The point that Paul is making is that the Christian is to glorify God with his entire being, body and soul and spirit. I think Paul's meaning here is captured by the psalmist in Psalm 103, where the psalmist writes, and he begins the psalm this way, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Question, who is the psalmist speaking to in that verse? Speaking to himself, as is very often the case. It's not an unusual phenomenon in the Psalms that the psalmist is speaking to himself. You could say there's a sense in which he's psyching himself up, so to speak. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. You see how he summons every fiber of his being to bless God. He would glorify God then with all that was within him. And this is how we're to live for the Lord and worship the Lord and serve the Lord. Not with half-hearted efforts, but with all our beings, our entire person, body, soul, and spirit. So as we partake of these elements this morning, let's remember the price, the price of blood, The shedding of Christ's blood, as one preacher points out, is the key reason behind his incarnation. By taking to himself flesh, he became a man, and as a man, he had blood, precious blood, more precious by far than anything in this world. And let's remember the ramification of that price. Because he purchased us, we are not our own. We never were. The devil did once upon a time have a claim on us as his slaves. 
but we've been bought by another, even Christ, so we are not our own. We belong to him. And the conclusion that lead, that, that leads us to is that we're to glorify him with all our hearts, body, soul, and spirit. Let's partake of these elements this morning in that fashion with all our hearts in humble and grateful remembrance of Christ and the price that he paid to purchase us. Let's close then in prayer before we distribute the elements. O Lord, as we bow in thy presence now, we pray that thou wilt indeed move our hearts to reverential awe as we contemplate a price that thou wast willing to pay. We know, Lord, that no amount of silver and gold could avail to atone for our sins. These are but products of thy creation. You could by thy very word make worlds of gold and silver if thou did so desire. Lord, these things could not prevail for our salvation. But we thank thee that there is a price that could be paid and that was paid, that Christ himself paid in the shedding of his blood. Help us now, dear Lord, as we partake of these elements, to remember him, to remember that price and its ramification and the conclusion it leads us to. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.